0: Hi, it's Chris. I hope everyone is staying safe and, to the extent possible, with your families and doing well. I've mentioned before that I do several other podcasts on topics like business, science, and education. I just did a really important one on the coronavirus kids and families that I want to tell you about. The podcast is called The 180. It's an incredible series of conversations with some extraordinary thinkers and doers who are transforming 21st century education using 21st century science. The episode I want you to know about is the most recent one with Dr. Pamela Cantor. She's founder and senior science advisor of Turnaround for Children, an organization founded in the wake of September 11th. The podcast is about how to address the fear, stress, and disruption caused by the pandemic. Here's a clip of what she said about how parents and educators should discuss coronavirus with young children and teenagers.
1: If I were talking to the seven-year-old, I would start with, here's what we're all going to do in the family now. This is a change. The teenager is very different Mm. because teenagers have will and intention and agency. So, I think they need more facts about what's really going on and and what the potential risks and consequences are to them. Mm. You have to ask their advice in how best to manage this. And if they have siblings, little siblings, engage them in helping a younger sibling to do the right thing. But I think this is a moment where a family has to come together and band together as a unit in order to be able to do things that are healthy and keep everybody safe. What you have to be is patiently persistent Mm. so that they know that this isn't going away anytime soon, that this is a new normal for the family, that we've all got to do it, and they have to get with the program. I think all of those things are opportunities for kids to feel a sense of responsibility to someone other than themselves, to care about others, not just themselves, and to figure out how to be participants in solving something, either with their peers or within the family unit.
0: I've posted a link to the whole conversation on chrisreback.com, or you can subscribe to the 180 at turnaroundusa.org slash podcast. Now... To today's conversation. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. So when I first scheduled an election analysis discussion with former U.S. Representative Steve Israel, it's fair to say that my initial set of questions had nothing to do with how to run for president in a time of coronavirus. That's where this conversation begins, but not where it ends. Because while we all navigate this new reality, we're also still trying to understand the Democratic primary. What in the world just happened? How did Joe Biden get blown out in the first three caucuses and primaries and then turn it all around to basically run the table? And assuming Biden holds on, did the moderate wing of the Democratic Party really win the ticket? Or did progressives set the agenda and took moderates along for the ride? How unified is the party? And what about Biden's running mate? He said he'll choose a woman VP candidate. Okay, beyond that, what are the practical and political factors that matter? More background on Steve Israel. He spent 16 years in Congress representing New York's third congressional district. That's on Long Island. He's the former chair of the DCCC and today serves as director of Cornell University's Institute of Politics and Global Affairs. He's also author of two political satire books, and we talk about his most recent one that took on the gun lobby. It's called Big Guns, and it's an excellent read. Before my conversation with Steve, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Thank you. That's it. Here's my conversation with former U.S. Representative Steve Israel. Steve, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
2: It is my pleasure. Good to be with you.
0: So the opening question, I know you would agree that most people's Twitter descriptions hold their most important details, that that vital information that goes to the heart of who they are. Well, you're no different. Yours includes 16 years in Congress, former chair of the DCCC, and left Congress Unindicted and undefeated. Now, that's a pretty rare circle you find yourself in. Uh, how'd you pull that one off? It is
2: a triumph. Yeah, It is a triumph to, to be able to leave that place unindicted and undefeated.
0: Yeah, uh, well, you know, congratulations on that. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, a, a, a diminishing circle. Uh, so a, a lot of things to talk about with somebody like you. I obviously want to get into mm-hmm. the campaign and the election. Um, uh, you know, and what's happened in the Democratic party and, and the, the primaries. But that, of course, is taking a back seat. Uh, you know, just as everything is to coronavirus. Um, in particular, the idea of running for president in a time of coronavirus. Um, mm-hmm. is it all about competency now?
2: It is, I think. Uh, You know, every campaign, Chris, as you know, has a narrative. Uh, So the narrative that President Trump wanted to uh, go into the the, uh, presidential cycle with was the economy is doing well. And why would you want to change it? Uh, for as long as this virus is with us, and it looks like it will be with us in various at various levels yeah. uh, for the, at least for the next several months, going into November, I think that narrative has been significantly changed, and that is who has the experience, the skill, and the ability to manage this crisis as you say competently mm. um, and What I find really interesting is this has been such an unpredictable uh, campaign cycle i mean nothing that anybody thought would happen, happened. And just about everything that nobody thought would happen, (laughs) happened. And so the original, uh, I guess, uh, criticism of Biden was that, you know, people were no longer voting on experience. They were no longer voting on a record. They were no longer voting on having been around for, you know, for, uh, you know, X number of years. I think that going into this campaign if we are at if we're still quarantining, uh if this crisis is still with us, I think that what was perceived as a disadvantage is going to be a major advantage for Joe Biden if uh, assuming he has a nomination, which I assume he will get.
0: And on that Point, on the, the competency point, you have wanted to, in your words, um, enshrine the actions of Donald Trump since the outbreak of the coronavirus. Um, you wrote mm-hmm. uh, just the other day in The Hill that the response, I'm quoting you here, the response by the president has been a train wreck and we are the passengers. As yeah. badly as things started, yeah. is this something that Trump can turn around? Can he, can he become the competency president?
2: Well, yes, he can, assuming that he uh, becomes competent. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the, you know, there's no question that from January until maybe uh, just the past week, uh, this has been just a record of inconsistency, of denial, of playing it down, of politicizing it. I think that President Trump uh, realized uh, just how sobering this is and that he had to, to show some consistent and coherent leadership. And so, yes, he has an opportunity to turn this around, but he's got to be disciplined uh, and show those leadership skills and not revert to the Donald Trump we you know. We know. Uh, if he does that, I think it comes at his own peril.
0: The words, I mean, I'm listening to the words you are saying, consistent, coherent, mm-hmm. disciplined. Not words right. that in the first three years um, have frequently been associated with the presidency. That's just not the operation that he runs.
2: Uh, well, that's exactly correct. And I, I've talked to some members of his staff and former members of his staff who, who they themselves accentuate the, how difficult it is to keep him disciplined. You know, it is, forgive me for this, but it has been like managing an adolescent, uh, where the staff will go in in the morning and say, okay, this is what we're going to accomplish. Uh, Please don't tweet. Um, Let's stay with the program. And within a half an hour, they're reading tweets that the the president sent. Now, that might work as a matter of entertainment, but this is a -a once-in-a-century crisis that we are experiencing now, Uh, and uh, he needs to just put all that away – and be focusing on the competent, consistent, and coherent management of this crisis. He's not going to have the economy to run on anymore. You know, his narrative, as I said, was is strong. Why would you want to change it? I know you may loathe me, but you must fear them. That has gone away. Even if this virus ends within the next few weeks, which it won't, although I hope it will, the economy is going to be rattled by every uh, economic projection I've seen, will be fundamentally rattled uh, around election time or going into the election. So he won't be able to run on the economy. The only thing he'll be able to run on is... Okay, I showed the leadership that was necessary, and we have to continue that leadership. He has a long way to go before convincing the American people. And Chris, let me say one other thing on this, because I think um, we're, uh, you know, such a bizarre uh, partisan environment. How does this affect polling? I mean, the the important question is, can Donald Trump, you know, get reelected, or will he lose as a result of the coronavirus And the answer, I think, is that we're in such partisan trenches that if you are part of the 45 percent of the population that loves Donald Trump, you're voting for him no matter what. And you believe that his handling of this crisis has been the most competent and the most compelling and the most consistent in the history of the presidency. And in fairness, if you're part of the nearly 50 percent of the population that loathes Donald Trump, if the guy were to invent, personally, invent a virus, a, a um, vaccination tomorrow, you're still going to go to the polls thinking that he was incompetent. So it's really, this comes down to maybe 10 to 15 percent of the population mm. that has not yet made a judgment.
0: What does it mean for him to position himself as a wartime president?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think it can mean two things. Um, so I, I, taken uh, in kind of a... Um, Uh, a constructive way, a wartime president uh, galvanizes resources, mobilizes industry, brings partners together, brings his cabinet in every day and says, you know, what are we doing on this? What are we doing on that? Uh, Invokes uh, executive orders that will... Uh, ultimately reduce the impact of, of the enemy. And in this case, the enemy is a virus. Here's what concerns me. Uh, he's beginning, you know, he's using this phrase China virus. Uh, and one thing this president is excellent at is finding the right words mm. that trigger emotions. Uh, and by calling this a China virus, I believe he's trying to position himself as a wartime president, not against the virus, but maybe China. Maybe he begins, if he becomes desperate, maybe he begins really uh, amplifying this and puts sanctions on China. Uh, Maybe China reacts to that. Maybe they overreact. Maybe we end up having a trade war during a recession, which puts us into a depression. Maybe it gets kinetic. You know, maybe uh, the president wants to uh, engage in a kind of behavior uh, to show that the virus is not his fault, but China's. Uh, that triggers some kind of military escalation, and then he becomes a different kind of wartime president, actually a president where militaries are fighting a battle. I am fine with the first part of the equation, Mm -hmm. wartime president against this virus. I am very concerned uh, about the latter, a wartime president now trying to convince the electorate that we're at war with China. uh, Therefore, you need to reelect me.
0: So much to keep an eye out for, and and yes, I yeah. think that's uh, you know certainly among the things that many many folks are are watching. L- let me turn to what otherwise you know in quote normal times would be the, mm-hmm. the thing I would really want to talk with you about, which is um, we're in the middle of a campaign, and we are perhaps yeah. at perhaps, and and this is one of the things I want to hear from you um, is kind of where are we within the uh democratic primary i have my point of view and i think many people do but but we'll we'll hear mm-hmm. yours first of all the you you kind of pointed it out nothing has turned out the way anyone would have expected i mean the twi- so biden is blown out early fourth in iowa fifth in new hampshire lost by 20 points in nevada then basically runs the table from there i mean you're the former head of the DCCC, steve mm-hmm. what kind of strategy is that
2: so I will tell you, and, and full disclosure, I am a very strong supporter of Joe Biden, uh, a, a longtime friend. Uh, he, he calls my mom from time to time. Uh, well, I'm glad
0: that uh, somebody – I'm glad someone calls your mom. I mean, you, you better get in the horn, too, there, man.
2: I, sh- I really should, actually, Chris. It's a little embarrassing <laughs> yeah. when the former vice president is calling her more than I do. Well, I was going to say though, it's um, pretty,
0: it's pretty cool if you can get, you know, if, if you're not able to call your mom, it, you, you know, you can get the yeah. former vice president to do it. That's cool.
2: And, and actually, before we get to the analysis of the primary, and I give you some kind of inside perspective on this, I, I should tell you that the reason he calls my mom is I was once in the Oval Office. With the vice president and the president, briefing them on the status of house races, Hmm. my dad had just received uh, a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Hmm. I mentioned it to the president, who wrote a beautiful note, and then the vice president took me into his office and said, this is going to be hard on your dad, but it's going to be harder on your mother. He said, I know, because I've dealt with family grief and tragedy. And he said, I want to call your mom. And he picked up the phone and called her, and they spoke for 20 minutes. Wow. He continued to call her, and I didn't even know. You know, my mother would call me and said, oh, I just talked to Joe. I'd say, Joe who? Right. She'd say, right. you know, the vice president. And that, that's one of the reasons that I'm so supportive of him, because I believe he he is a healer. Um, can can, can I ask you one... The,
0: can, yeah, sure. I, I, I want your analysis. I just want one follow-up on, on that, please. Mm-hmm. Everything that one hears about. It. I don't know him. We we all hear that he is such an incredibly nice guy, nicest politician. Yeah. Taking Steve Israel out of it, the nicest politician. Is that true? What what is that? It's is so that true. It, so? It is true. And is that just who he is? What what is it about him? What is it about him?
2: Um, he has faced tragedy and devastation, uh, personal loss more deeply than most Americans have. Uh, lost his wife, child, lost another child. And so he's got this uh, deep sense of empathy. Hmm. And when you connect with people uh, empathetically, um, they view you as somebody who just understands them and is nice. He doesn't have the killer instinct. You know, he's not going out and, you know, uh, he's not a politician. He's not the most ruthless politician in the world. Yeah. But he is the most connective politician uh, I've seen, mm. certainly since Bill Clinton. And that's why, you know, it's very perceptive of you, Chris. When you ask people, and I've seen polls, you know, what do you like about Biden? He's a nice guy. Right. Uh, and that's important. Likeability is really important in an election.
0: It- isn't it crazy? I, I bet six months ago, one would have yeah. argued that what, we, what, what is needed is a killer. If you're going to run against Trump, uh-huh. you've got to be a killer. It just may right. be that the Times right now call not for a killer, but for a connective politician. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So okay. I think, or put otherwise, uh, not, a, not a killer, but a healer. I think there's mm-hmm. a sense among many Americans, not the 45% who love this president, that, you know, I can shoot somebody on, on Fifth Avenue and, yep. and gain votes,
0: yep. Yep.
2: but with that, that people who have not yet made a judgment, I think that they are desperately seeking somebody who can heal us, and including, including that healing is heal the economy, uh, you know, heal us from this disease, heal us from the, the partisanship and the screaming and the shutdowns. And that, I think, is his greatest value.
0: Okay, so, so, you know, with apologies, back to the question I asked you 17 yeah. minutes ago. Uh, what, <laughs> what kind of strategy is it to get blown out in your first three or four primaries and then run the table?
2: Yeah. So I'll tell you what we knew. And then I'll tell you what we didn't know. We knew that Iowa, and New Hampshire were going to be brutal. Um, It was not a demographic electorate that favored Joe Biden. Uh, It was a very narrow demography. Uh, It wasn't a diverse demography. Uh, And so the challenge was, could we just get past Iowa and New Hampshire and come out with a semblance of a campaign? Um, Then we knew that we'd go to Nevada and perform better, and then we knew we'd go to South Carolina and do very well. That's what we knew, and all that came true. Here's what we didn't know. We didn't know that when we went to South Carolina, we'd win by 28 points. Uh, We didn't know. We knew we were going to win South Carolina, and I was telling people, you know, 10, 15 points would be extraordinary, but that 28-point lead, that endorsement by uh, Jim Clyburn, Clyburn, Uh, was just extraordinary, and that was like a booster rocket, right? And it just propelled the campaign uh, and uh, set it up to return people to the original their original instinct. And the original instinct about Biden is, if you're a Democrat, I'm voting for him because he's the only guy who could beat Trump. Then Biden lost those first two primaries, or the caucus and primary, and the thinking was, well, if he can't even beat Sanders, I don't think he's going to beat Trump. Maybe yep. I should look elsewhere. Then he begins winning again and winning handily, and people revert to that original instinct. This guy knows how to win campaigns, elections. He's the guy we need to beat Donald Trump. He's attracting diverse voters, and uh, both on the left and in the center.
0: Biden has said his running mate will be a woman. How do you yeah, handicap? I was
2: a little disappointed. I thought it was going to be me, so those was a crushing moment
0: for me. That, that is a crushing moment, and, and I lost yeah. in the I lost in the pool too. I had you, Steve. You were my you were my pick as well. <laughs> That's what and my mother. Don't don't forget okay, my mother. Good, good. I'm in mean, good company. Uh, how how right. do you handicap it? In your view, whom should he choose, and whom will he choose?
2: Uh, well he's it's not my uh not my decision not my judgment and um, i did not know that he was going to announce that the uh Uh, at the debate with uh, Sanders in Washington that it would be a woman. I think the bottom line is this. This election is going to be won or or lost in only seven states. You know, we no longer have national elections for president, Chris. We have seven statewide elections, seven, maybe eight states uh, that swing both ways in the Electoral College. Within those seven or eight states, there are about 20 to 30 counties uh, that are swing counties. Uh, So, for example, Kenosha County, Wisconsin, Kenosha County voted for Biden and Obama twice and then swung to Trump by one one percent. Mm-hmm. The running mate has to be able to add something to the ticket. Uh, and that means winning Kenosha, winning Wisconsin, uh, winning Erie County in Pennsylvania, uh, winning the suburbs of Philadelphia, winning Pinellas in Florida and Maricopa in Arizona. Whatever combination of uh, presidential candidate and vice presidential candidate can win those areas and take two electoral college states back from Donald Trump is a combination that uh, makes the most sense.
0: So to that point, in winning back those 20, what, what, what excellent analysis, those 20 to 30 counties in seven to eight states. Conventional wisdom seems to have been that in Biden versus Sanders, well, you know, in moderate versus progressive, the moderate side won. But, Biden, as you know, has taken on Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy plan. He has taken yeah. on over yeah. the last days, Bernie's, uh, education plan, uh, around college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Biden has been historically seen as a liberal, as he says, someone who's mm-hmm. always been a Democrat. Um, but has perhaps moved even further left. That's part of what, uh, Bernie yeah. Sanders has, has, has helped mm-hmm. bring to the. So mm-hmm. did the moderate side of the party really win?
2: So, look, the the vital strategy uh, as you begin to leave a primary and go into a general election is you must unite the party, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. Step one, unite the party. And that is what the vice president is doing now, uniting the party, bringing the the Sanders and the Warren and folks uh, in the uh, progressive base back into the tent. You don't want to leave them outside the tent, while at the same time, continuing to appeal to those moderate voters uh, in those, you know, 20 or 30 counties, seven states. Uh, And that's why uh, he is, uh, you know, doing what he needs to do, talking about policies that he can support in principle that also have value uh, to the progressive community. This replicates the 2018 Democratic strategy that won the midterms in the House of Representatives. They did it with two fundamental uh, strategies: One, appeal to the left, get out the base. And two, appeal to the center and flip Republican districts. Get those swing Republican voters who supported Trump back to vote for Democrats. And Biden is going to, assuming he's the nominee, is going to need to uh, replicate that strategy. To replicate that strategy, it means you've got to listen to to the folks who didn't initially support you. You've got to listen to Bernie Sanders uh, supporters, Warren supporters, and make sure that your uh, platforms reflect those values in some way.
0: And can we finish our conversation by talking about one of the issues that, I you know certainly I expect will be certainly would have been um, primary and and that is about guns and gun safety yeah. um, and I'd love to talk to you about uh, this little work of fiction um, but with <laughs> a big message behind it um, called big guns. Um, My my first question, of course, is uh, written by one Steve Israel. So my first question is, what's a former U.S. representative and head of an Ivy League Institute of Politics (laughs) doing writing fictional satire about guns?
2: Well, you know, I while I was in Congress and while I chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, I needed uh, a therapy and it was writing. I grew up in. Levittown, Long Island. And I had three dreams. Uh, One, I'd one day be in Congress. Two, I'd be a a novelist. And three, I'd play for the Mets.
1: And uh,
2: (laughs) now I could play for the Mets, actually. um, (laughs) And uh, I love writing. I left Congress so that I could spend my time writing books instead of laws that just weren't going to pass in a a partisan environment. And I love uh, my genre is political satire. I believe that if you 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 can't make a point by hitting somebody over the head with a two by four uh, or a uh you can do it most effectively through the, the lens of political satire so I, my first book was the global Warren Morris uh, yeah. Rob Reiner uh, has, has the movie rights uh, which was a, um, a satire about the Bush administration's response to, uh, the, in the global war on terror. And the second book, Big Guns, answers the question in a satirical way, why doesn't Congress pass common-sense legislation on gun safety that is supported by 90% of the American people? I face that question constantly in Congress, and I answer that question by bring, bring, uh, bringing people inside the House, inside the committees, inside the speaker's office, uh, and, and uh, tell a story that answers that question uh, with a tongue planted firmly in cheek.
0: Firmly in cheek, and, and the terms yes. of phrase and the, uh, you know, whether it's the, the satirical irony, but um, the American Freedom from Fear Act, the, <laughs> the, the only way to make us all uh, safer, feel safer, of course, obviously, uh, would be to mandate that every one of us has a gun, isn't it?
2: Yes, that's the, that's, uh, the premise of the book, that Congress uh, passes a law or tries to pass a law mandating that every American must own and carry a gun, with sensible exceptions for children under the age of seven.
0: Yeah. And the Washington Post wrote of the book that clearly 16 years in the House provided you with a graduate education on the cozy relationship between America's business leaders and our political representatives. Mm -hmm. So you called it a political satire, but those components of it, that cozy relationship, that, that wasn't satire, was it?
2: No, uh, and, and that was a fundamental lesson that I wanted reflected in the book. You know, I, 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 it, it's not really a tell-all uh, calling out members of Congress. It's a tell-all calling out the pressures that members of Congress mm. face by the political action community and special interests and uh, what happens when they want to make a decision, vote one way, but feel pressured to vote another way. In this case, uh, many of members of Congress fall under the pressure uh, of the uh, gun manufacturing industry.
0: And uh, the, the timing, the terrible timing. Um, your book yeah. came out right after the Parkland shootings, uh, down mm-hmm. in Florida, what what was that like? Releasing a book, kind of getting to the heart of a major aspect of the problem, right as it was taking over yeah. the uh, American consciousness.
2: It's it's a fair question. And you know, when I when the book came out, um, one of the concerns that I heard uh, in my press tour was, how could you make fun of of gun violence? Uh, you know, how do you take an issue as sobering and as tragic as as that? and make it satire um, it's not easy to do uh, but I will point out uh, as you know because I know you're a voracious reader uh, uh, that Mark Twain wrote satire about slavery yep. and Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22 it was a uh, it took place in World War II but it was a satire of Vietnam satire is one device that uses humor creates a narrative brings you through the twists and turns and gets to a a point, um, and that's exactly what I wanted to do with big guns.
0: Yeah, and, and it does it, and, and yes, there's a massive, gaping, important difference between satire and and making fun, making fun, which you know one might argue we may have seen in various aspects of society over the last months. Right. Um, that's not right. And satire is using exactly what you said, wit and intelligence and narrative and storytelling to make a point. Um, Steve, I I think I should end by putting you 100% on the spot with what I think is the pertinent question. Uh, so in, in the end, are you a better congressman or writer?
2: Oh, that is a tough question.
0: Uh, I'd
2: like—I'd like to suggest that I was competent at uh, and am competent uh, at, at both. Again, if you leave Congress, having not lost an election or being brought to jail, that makes you a very good member of Congress,
0: <laughs> and uh, and a very very good writer as well. Steve, thank you, uh, thank, you. thank you for your time. and thank Thanks you, for sir. the uh, the analysis. Anytime. That was my conversation with Steve Israel. My thanks to Steve for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.